Chapter Nine, Part A of Roderick Hudson by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Nine, Mary Garland. How it befell that Roderick had failed to be in Leghorn on his mother's arrival never clearly transpired, for he undertook to give no elaborate explanation of his fault. He never indulged in professions touching personal conduct as to the future or in remorse as to the past and as he would have asked no praise if he had travelled night and day to embrace his mother as she set foot on shore, he made, in Rowland's presence at least, no apology for having left her to come in search of him. It was to be said that thanks to an unprecedentedly fine season, the voyage of the two ladies had been surprisingly rapid, and that according to common probabilities, if Roderick had left Rome on the morrow, as he declared that he had intended, he would have had a day or two of waiting at Leghorn. Roland's silent inference was that Christina Light had beguiled him into letting the time slip, and it was accompanied with a silent inquiry whether she had done so unconsciously or maliciously. He had told her, presumably, that his mother and his cousin were about to arrive, and it was pertinent to remember hereupon that she was a young lady of mysterious impulses. Roland heard in due time the story of the adventures of the two ladies from Northampton. Miss Garland's wish at Leghorn, on finding they were left at the mercy of circumstances, had been to telegraph to Roderick and await an answer, for she knew that their arrival was a trifle premature. But Mrs. Hudson's maternal heart had taken the alarm. Roderick's sending for them was, to her imagination, a confession of illness, and his not being at Leghorn a proof of it. An hour's delay was therefore cruel both to herself and to him. She insisted on immediate departure, and unskilled as they were in the mysteries of foreign, or even of domestic, travel, they had hurried in trembling eagerness to Rome. They had arrived late in the evening, and knowing nothing of inns, had got into a cab and proceeded to Roderick's lodgings. At the door, poor Mrs. Hudson's frightened anxiety had overcome her, and she had sat quaking and crying in the vehicle, too weak to move. Miss Garland had bravely gone in, groped her way up the dusky staircase, reached Roderick's door, and with the assistance of such acquaintance with the Italian tongue as she had culled from a phrase-book during the calmer hours of the voyage, had learned from the old woman who had her cousin's household economy in charge that he was in the best of health and spirits, and had gone forth a few hours before with his hat on his ear per divertirsi. These things Roland learned during a visit he paid the two ladies in the evening after their arrival. Mrs. Hudson spoke of them at great length, and with an air of clinging confidence in Roland, which told him how faithfully time had served him in her imagination. But her fright was over, though she was still catching her breath a little, like a person dragged ashore out of waters uncomfortably deep. She was excessively bewildered and confused, and seemed more than ever to demand a tender handling from her friends. Before Miss Garland, Roland was distinctly conscious that he trembled. He wondered extremely what was going on in her mind, what was her silent commentary on the incidents of the night before. He wondered all the more, because he immediately perceived that she was greatly changed since their parting, and that the change was by no means for the worse. She was older, easier, more free, more like a young woman who went sometimes into company. She had more beauty as well, inasmuch as her beauty before had been the depth of her expression, and the sources from which this beauty was fed 
had in these two years evidently not wasted themselves. Roland felt almost instantly, he could hardly have said why, it was in her voice, in her tone, in the air, that a total change had passed over her attitude to himself. She trusted him now, absolutely. Whether or no she liked him, she believed that he was solid. He felt that during the coming weeks he would need to be solid. Mrs. Hudson was at one of the smaller hotels, and her sitting-room was frugally lighted by a couple of candles. Roland made the most of this dim illumination to try to detect the afterglow of that frightened flash from Miss Garland's eyes the night before. It had been but a flash, for what provoked it had instantly vanished. Roland had murmured a rapturous blessing on Roderick's head, as he perceived him instantly apprehend the situation. If he had been drinking, its gravity sobered him on the spot. In a single moment he collected his wits. The next moment, with a ringing, jovial cry, he was folding the young girl in his arms, and the next he was beside his mother's carriage, half smothered in her sobs and caresses. Roland had recommended a hotel close at hand, and had then discreetly withdrawn. Roderick was at this time doing his part superbly, and Miss Garland's brow was serene. It was serene now, twenty-four hours later, but nevertheless her alarm had lasted an appreciable moment. What had become of it? It had dropped down deep into her memory, and it was lying there for the present in the shade. But with another week, Roland said to himself, it would leap erect again. The lightest friction would strike a spark from it. Roland thought he had schooled himself to face the issue of Mary Garland's advent, casting it even in a tragical phase, but in her personal presence, in which he found a poignant mixture of the familiar and the strange, he seemed to face it and all that it might bring with it for the first time. In vulgar parlance he stood uneasy in his shoes. He felt like walking on tiptoe, not to arouse the sleeping shadows. He felt, indeed, almost like saying that they might have their own way later, if they would only allow to these first few days the clear light of ardent contemplation. For Roland at last was ardent, and all the bells within his soul were ringing bravely and jubilee. Roderick, he learned, had been the whole day with his mother, and had evidently responded to her purest trust. He appeared to her appealing eyes, still unspotted by the world. That is what it is, thought Roland, to be gifted, to escape not only the superficial, but the intrinsic penalties of misconduct. The two ladies had spent the day within doors, resting from the fatigues of travel. Miss Garland, Roland suspected, was not so fatigued as she suffered it to be assumed. She had remained with Mrs. Hudson to attend to her personal wants, which the latter seemed to think, now that she was in a foreign land with a southern climate and a Catholic religion, would forthwith become very complex and formidable, though as yet they had simply resolved themselves into a desire for a great deal of tea and for a certain extremely familiar old black-and-white shawl across her feet as she lay on the sofa. But the sense of novelty was evidently strong upon Miss Garland, and the light of expectation was in her eye. She was restless and excited. She moved about the room and went often to the window. She was observing keenly. She watched the Italian servants intently as they came and went. She had already had a long colloquy with the French chambermaid, who had expounded her views on the Roman question. She noted the small differences in the furniture, in the food, in the sounds that came from the street. 
Roland felt in all this that her intelligence, here, would have a great unfolding. He wished immensely he might have a share in it. He wished he might show her Rome. That, of course, would be Roderick's office. But he promised himself at least to take advantage of off hours. "'It behooves you to appreciate your good fortune,' he said to her. "'To be young and elastic, and yet old enough and wise enough to discriminate and reflect, and to come to Italy for the first time, that is one of the greatest pleasures that life offers us. It is but right to remind you of it, so that you make the most of opportunity, and do not accuse yourself later of having wasted the precious season.' Miss Garland looked at him, smiling intently, and went to the window again. I expect to enjoy it, she said. Don't be afraid. I am not wasteful. I am afraid we are not qualified, you know, said Mrs. Hudson. We are told that you must know so much that you must have read so many books. Our taste has not been cultivated. When I was a young lady at school, I remember I had a medal with a pink ribbon for proficiency in ancient history, the seven kings, or is it the seven hills, and Quintus Curtius and Julius Caesar, and— and that period, you know. I believe I have my medal somewhere in a drawer now, but I have forgotten all about the kings. But after Roderick came to Italy, we tried to learn something about it. Last winter Mary used to read Corinne to me in the evenings, and in the morning she used to read another book to herself. What was it, Mary, that book that was so long, you know, in fifteen volumes? It was Sismondi's Italian Republics, said Mary simply. Roland could not help laughing, whereupon Mary blushed. "'Did you finish it?' he asked. "'Yes, and began another, a shorter one, Roscoe's Leo the Tenth. "'Did you find them interesting?' "'Oh, yes. Do you like history?' "'Some of it.' "'That's a woman's answer. And do you like art?' She paused a moment. "'I have never seen it.' "'You have great advantages now, my dear, with Roderick and Mr. Mallet,' said Mrs. Hudson. "'I am sure no young lady ever had such advantages. "'You come straight to the highest authorities. "'Roderick, I suppose, will show you the practice of art. "'And Mr. Mallet, perhaps, if he will be so good, will show you the theory. "'As an artist's wife, you ought to know something about it.' "'One learns a good deal about it here by simply living,' said Roland, "'by going and coming about one's daily avocations.' "'Dear, dear, how wonderful that we should be here in the midst of it,' murmured Mrs. Hudson. "'To think of art being out there in the streets. We didn't see much of it last evening, as we drove from the depot. But the streets were so dark, and we were so frightened. But we are very easy now, aren't we, Mary?' "'I am very happy,' said Mary, gravely, and wandered back to the window again. Roderick came in at this moment, and kissed his mother, and then went over— and joined Miss Garland. Roland sat with Mrs. Hudson, who evidently had a word which she deemed of some value for his private ear. She followed Roderick with intensely earnest eyes. "'I wish to tell you, sir,' she said, "'how very grateful, how very thankful, what a happy mother I am. I feel as if I owed it all to you, sir, to find my poor boy so handsome, so prosperous, so elegant, so famous.' and ever to have doubted of you. What must you think of me? You're our guardian angel, sir. I often say so to Mary." Roland wore, in response to this speech, a rather haggard brow. He could only murmur that he was glad she found Roderick looking well. 
He had, of course, promptly asked himself whether the best discretion dictated that he should give her a word of warning, just turn the handle of the door through which later disappointment might enter. He had determined to say nothing, but simply to wait in silence for Roderick to find effective inspiration in those confidently expectant eyes. It was to be supposed that he was seeking for it now. He remained some time at the window with his cousin. But at last he turned away and came over to the fireside with a contraction of the eyebrows, which seemed to intimate that Miss Garland's influence was, for the moment at least, not soothing. She presently followed him, and for an instant Roland observed her watching him, as if she thought him strange. Strange enough, thought Roland, he may seem to her, if he will. Roderick directed his glance to his friend with a certain peremptory air, which roughly interpreted was equivalent to a request to share the intellectual expense of entertaining the ladies. "'Good heavens!' Roland cried within himself. "'Is he already tired of them?' "'Tomorrow, of course, we must begin to put you through the mill,' Roderick said to his mother, "'and be it hereby known to Mallet that we count upon him to turn the wheel.' "'I will do as you please, my son,' said Mrs. Hudson. "'So long as I have you with me, I don't care where I go. We must not take up too much of Mr. Mallet's time.' His time is inexhaustible. He has nothing under the sun to do. Have you, Roland? If you had seen the big hole I have been making in it, where will you go first? You have your choice, from the Scala Santa to the Cloaca Maxima. Let us take things in order, said Roland. We will go first to St. Peter's. Miss Garland, I hope you are impatient to see St. Peter's. I would like to go first to Roderick's studio, said Miss Garland. "'It's a very nasty place,' said Roderick. "'At your pleasure.' "'Yes, we must see your beautiful things before we can look contentedly at anything else,' said Mrs. Hudson. "'I have no beautiful things,' said Roderick. "'You may see what there is. What makes you look so odd?' This inquiry was abruptly addressed to his mother, who in response glanced appealingly at Mary, and raised a startled hand to her smooth hair. "'No, it's your face,' said Roderick. What has happened to it in these two years? It has changed its expression. Your mother has prayed a great deal, said Miss Garland simply. I didn't suppose, of course, it was from doing anything bad. It makes you a very good face, very interesting, very solemn. It has very fine lines in it. Something might be done with it. And Roland held one of the candles near the poor lady's head. She was covered with confusion. "'My son, my son,' she said with dignity, "'I don't understand you.' In a flash all his old alacrity had come to him. "'I suppose a man may admire his own mother,' he cried. "'If you please, madam, you'll sit to me for that head. "'I see it, I see it. "'I will make something that a queen can't get done for her.' Roland respectfully urged her to assent. He saw Roderick was in the vein and would probably do something eminently original. She gave her promise, at last, after many soft, inarticulate protests, and a frightened petition that she might be allowed to keep her knitting. Roland returned the next day with plenty of zeal for the part Roderick had assigned to him. It had been arranged that they should go to St. Peter's. Roderick was in high good humour, and in the carriage was watching his mother with a fine mixture of filial and professional tenderness. Mrs. Hudson looked up mistrustfully at the tall, shabby houses, and grasped the side of the barouche in her hand, as if she were in a sailboat in dangerous waters. Roland sat opposite to Miss Garland. 
She was totally oblivious of her companions. From the moment the carriage left the hotel, she sat gazing, wide-eyed and absorbed, at the objects about them. If Roland had felt disposed, he might have made a joke of her intense seriousness. From time to time he told her the name of a place or a building, and she nodded without looking at him. When they emerged into the great square between Bernini's colonnades, she laid her hand on Mrs. Hudson's arm, and sank back in the carriage, staring up at the vast yellow façade of the church. Inside the church Roderick gave his arm to his mother, and Roland constituted himself the especial guide of Miss Garland. He walked with her slowly everywhere, and made the entire circuit, telling her all he knew of the history of the building. This was a great deal, but she listened attentively, keeping her eyes fixed on the dome. To Roland himself it had never seemed so radiantly sublime as at these moments. He felt almost as if he had contrived it himself, and had a right to be proud of it. He left Miss Garland a while on the steps of the choir, where she had seated herself to rest, and went to join their companions. Mrs. Hudson was watching a great circle of tattered contadini, who were kneeling before the image of St. Peter. The fashion of their tatters fascinated her. She stood gazing at them in a sort of terrified pity, and could not be induced to look at anything else. Roland went back to Miss Garland, and sat down beside her. "'Well, what do you think of Europe?' he asked, smiling. "'I think it's horrible,' she said abruptly. "'Horrible?' "'I feel so strangely. I could almost cry.' "'How is it that you feel?' so sorry for the poor past that seems to have died here in my heart in an hour. But surely you're pleased, you're interested. I am overwhelmed. Here, in a single hour, everything has changed. It is as if a wall in my mind had been knocked down at a stroke. Before me lies an immense new world, and it makes the old one, the poor little narrow familiar one I have always known, seem pitiful. But you didn't come to Rome to keep your eyes fastened on that narrow little world. Forget it, turn your back on it, and enjoy all this. I want to enjoy it, but as I sat here just now, looking up at that golden mist in the dome, I seemed to see in it the vague shapes of certain people and things at home. To enjoy, as you say, as these things demand of one to enjoy them, is to break with one's past, and breaking is a pain. Don't mind the pain, and it will cease to trouble you. Enjoy, enjoy, it is your duty, yours especially. Why mine especially? Because I am very sure that you have a mind capable of doing the most liberal justice to everything interesting and beautiful. You are extremely intelligent. You don't know, said Miss Garland simply. In that matter one feels. I really think that I know better than you. I don't want to seem patronizing, but I suspect that your mind is susceptible of a great development. Give it the best company, trust it, let it go." She looked away from him for some moments, down the gorgeous vista of the great church. "'But what you say,' she said at last, "'means change.' "'Change for the better,' cried Roland. "'How can one tell? As one stands, one knows the worst. It seems to me very frightful to develop she added with her complete smile. One is in for it in one way or another, and one might as well do it with a good grace as with a bad. Since one can't escape life, it is better to take it by the hand. Is this what you call life? she asked. What do you mean by this? 
St. Peter's, all this splendor, all Rome, pictures, ruins, statues, beggars, monks. It is not all of it, but it is a large part of it. All these things are impregnated with life. They are the fruits of an old and complex civilization. An old and complex civilization. I am afraid I don't like that. Don't conclude on that point just yet. Wait till you have tested it. While you wait, you will see an immense number of very beautiful things, things you are made to understand. They won't leave you as they found you. Then you can judge. Don't tell me I know nothing about your understanding. I have a right to assume it. Miss Garland gazed a while aloft in the dome. I am not sure I understand that, she said. I hope at least that at a cursory glance it pleases you, said Rowland. You needn't be afraid to tell the truth. What strikes some people is that it is so remarkably small. Oh, it's large enough. It's very wonderful. There are things in Rome, then, she added in a moment, turning and looking at him, that are very, very beautiful. Lots of them. Some of the most beautiful things in the world? Unquestionably. What are they? Which things have most beauty? That is according to taste. I should say the statues. How long will it take to see them all, to know at least something about them? You can see them all, as far as mere seeing goes, in a fortnight. But to know them is a thing for one's leisure. The more time you spend among them, the more you care for them. After a moment's hesitation he went on. Why should you grudge time? It's all in your way, since you are to be an artist's wife. I have thought of that, she said. It may be that I shall always live here, among the most beautiful things in the world. Very possibly. I should like to see you ten years hence. I dare say I shall seem greatly altered, but I am sure of one thing. Of what? That for the most part I shall be quite the same. I ask nothing better than to believe the fine things you say about my understanding. But even if they are true it won't matter. I shall be what I was made, what I am now a young woman from the country, the fruit of a civilization not old and complex, but new and simple. I am delighted to hear it. That's an excellent foundation. Perhaps if you show me anything more you will not always think so kindly of it. Therefore I warn you. I am not frightened. I should like vastly to say something to you. Be what you are, be what you choose, but do sometimes as I tell you. If Roland was not frightened, neither perhaps was Miss Garland, but she seemed at least slightly disturbed. She proposed that they should join their companions. Mrs. Hudson spoke under her breath. She could not be accused of the want of reverence sometimes attributed to Protestants in the great Catholic temples. "'Mary, dear,' she whispered, "'suppose we had to kiss that dreadful brass toe. If I could only have kept our door-knocker at Northampton as bright as that.' I think it's so heathenish, but Roderick says he thinks it sublime. Roderick had evidently grown a trifle perverse. It's sublimer than anything that your religion asks you to do, he exclaimed. Surely our religion sometimes gives us very difficult duties, said Miss Garland. The duty of sitting in a whitewashed meeting-house and listening to a nasal Puritan. I admit that's difficult, but it's not sublime. I am speaking of ceremonies, of forms. It is in my line, you know, to make much of forms. I think it is a very beautiful one. Couldn't you do it? he demanded, looking at his cousin. She looked back at him intently and then shook her head. I think not. Why not? 
I don't know. I couldn't. During this little discussion, our four friends were standing near the venerable image of St. Peter, and a squalid, savage-looking peasant, a tattered ruffian of the most orthodox Italian aspect, had been performing his devotions before it. He turned away, crossing himself, and Mrs. Hudson gave a little shudder of horror. After that, she murmured, I suppose he thinks he is as good as any one. And here is another. Oh, what a beautiful person! End of chapter 9, part A